chapter 7, verse 25, it says, At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will, not look, for, you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go to where our people have lived scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day and the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Christ. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. This is the word of the Lord. During prayer time, um, I heard Nick Orozco speaking in tongues, speaking in some heavenly language. I was blessed by it from my little bit of knowledge. I think it was Spanish. I know that he prayed for someone's family and friends and asked for Christ and his salvation. It was, uh, it was a blessing to hear him pray. As we take a look at John 7, 25 to 50 or 46, um, there's several things that come up. The biggest question here is, are you thirsty? How have you been quenching your thirst? What quenches your thirst? Where have you gone to quench your thirst? Is there something that you've been going to? Is there a place that you've been to try to quench that thirst down deep in your heart and in your soul, but your thirst is not quenched? There's a lot of uh, 
myths and misconceptions going on around in this narrative. A lot of the, the misconceptions that are, that are being presented through this narrative through John is that Jesus is a blasphemer. He's possessed by a demon. He's a poor man from Galilee. He's a deceiver. Which, which one of these things are true? Which ones are right? Is that what we believe that he is? Is that what truly the teachers of the law, the teachers of the Bible, the Pharisees, the priests were teaching? Is that Jesus is a deceiver? Well, the argument's going back and forth. People are confused, and they're trying to figure out what exactly the truth is. In verse 25, it says, At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that this is the Christ? But we know where he is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. So we have different misconceptions and ideas being taught. We even have Nathan saying, can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? When we take the priest teachings in the synagogues, and what they're saying, they're taking and they're looking at Isaiah, that's Isaiah saying, he will suddenly appear. Over here, Malachi is saying he'll be preceded by the prophet Elijah. When you take them both put together, they, they, how do you know when you're going to see him? Well, let's add some conjecture in there. Let's give some opinions. Let's try to figure this out. Okay, when he appears, nobody will know where he's from. Nobody, not even himself, will understand that he's the Messiah. He'll be appearing on earth, and then Elijah will come and anoint him, and he will then understand that he is the Christ, the anointed, the chosen one, the king of Israel. So the people are saying, well, we're not supposed to know where he's coming from. But yet we know where he's from. He's a Nazarene. They're taking the misconceptions that are being taught. They're taking the words from the priest. The problem is they didn't have scrolls that they could take home. They couldn't afford them. We are so blessed that we have scriptures in our hands, but now we are even more responsible than they are. It would take a day's, a year's wages to even buy a piece of a scroll to take home with them. And now we have everything that we know written about God right here in our own hands. So when we're being taught something, we need to check to see what is being taught. Is this truly the word of God? I know that from this pulpit we will tell you when we are giving you an opinion. But still, check it against Scripture. Scripture is the truth. Scripture is the weight. Scripture is the word of God to you that you can understand who the Messiah is. The big question is, are you thirsty? As we mull over the misconceptions that come to the people, they're still trying to say, he's teaching so well, his miracles. He, is this the prophet? Is this the Christ? We don't know because we've been told we won't know. Wow, what a quandrum that they're in. How could that be solved? When we look at verses 28 and 29, it's amazing. It says that he's still teaching. And he's crying out to the people. And he's saying to them, you know where I am from. You know where I'm from. I've been among you for 33 years. 
I was born in Bethlehem as the prophets say I would be. I was born of the lineage of David, in the town and the city of David, in the town of Bethlehem. You know where I'm from. I am from God the Father. If you knew the Father, you would know me. But you don't know the Father, and you don't know me. Therefore, you truly do not know where I am from. Town of Bethlehem is with his birthplace. Where he is from, he's from the Father's side. At these words, they tried to seize him. So the crowd got mixed up in the, in the anxiousness of trying to seize him, of trying to arrest him, of take him captive. He's still out here teaching? What? The teachers of the law are letting him loose? Shouldn't we grab a hold of him? But wait a minute. Wait a minute. But what he's teaching us seems right. From what he's teaching, what he's teaching us seems to move us. We seem to be understanding him because it goes on to say that they began to believe. They could not seize him. In 31, the temple guards are sent out to seize him also. But they could not seize him because his time had not yet come. 33. Jesus wanted to throw a little bit into the mix. He wanted to up the ante. He wanted to, to put a little bit of fear into the Pharisees' hearts. He said to them, verse 33, I'm with you only for a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. I think for a minute... This twinged the Pharisees' hearts so that they thought for just a minute, maybe this is the Messiah. What does he mean by this statement? He's going somewhere where we will not be able to find him, and we can't go with him also. The only place I can think is he's going to heaven, and we won't be able to follow him there. But that thought probably only lasted the time of a vapor. They thought it for a moment, and then he dismissed it because they went on literally to try to humiliate him and ridicule him. And he said, where is he going to go? To the dysphoria? To the dispersion of the Jews? To the other countries? To the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Basically, they're saying, ah, what a loser. He's going to the Gentiles to teach the Gentiles. No one goes to the Gentiles. They're untouchable. They're godless people. They're horrific people. They are people that do not believe in God. They're a godless nation. They are the Greeks and the Gentiles. Let them go there. That's fine. We've defeated him. We've taken him out of our presence, and he is going to leave. Let him go, but let me give you a small warning. In Isaiah 55, Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. This is the day of salvation. Today is the time. This is the hour. This is the moment. This is the time to proclaim Christ as Lord and Savior. This is the time to confess our faults and our sins and to be rejuvenated by the Spirit. This is our time to turn our lives over to Christ. Now, today is the day of salvation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. It is a warning. Jesus says, I will be with you for a short time, and where I am going, you cannot come. 
Seek him while he may be found. The problem is the teachers, the priests, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the leaders of this nation were so blinded by their own sin, so blinded by their own arrogance, so blinded by their own pride, they could not see Christ standing before them. Who do you say that he is? If he stood before you right now today, would you recognize the Christ? Would you recognize Jesus and who he is? The problem with sin, it's like a python. There's a thrill. There's an adrenaline rush. There's euphoria and excitement when you hold a python. Ask Jerry Boyer. I took my kids over there so they could pet the python, hold a couple of rattlesnakes. <laughs> Talk to him. He'll tell you some great stories. It's a thrill. It's fascinating. It's a rush to hold that python. It's like sin. Sin is such a rush. It's fascinating. It's a thrill for a moment while you first have it and you have control over it and you can put it down when you want to. But then you go back and pick up sin again. And then you play with it a little bit more, a little bit longer. Then before you know it, like a python, like a boa, like a constrictor, it wraps around you. Ask Jerry. Jerry was on his phone. Nobody was answering their phone, so he got on Facebook on his phone. While the boa constrictor, while the, while the python had his arm pulling him into a cage. He's trying to get a hold of everybody he could. He could not break the hold of that python. Sin will grab a hold of you like a constrictor and bind you up that you cannot get loose. The problem with sin is it's fancy. It's tantalizing. It draws you in, but it's a slippery slope. When you slide on that, you will slide down the slope, and the chains will bind you, and you won't be able to get loose. You'll need somebody to come to the rescue. I know there's a couple of stories that Jerry has of being wrapped up by a different, <laughs> those, those pythons. But I know the one time that his wife had to come home, had to go in there, beat that thing, yank on its tail, push it off. He needed help to get out of the grips of that python. Otherwise, we would not be seeing Jerry Boyer today. Ask him, he'll tell you about it. That's what it is with sin. Sin is like shackles. It grabs a hold of you. The more you play with it, the deeper in sin you get, the more it shackles and binds you up, and you need somebody to release you from the shackles of sin. The only one that can rescue you, rescue your life from the shackles of sin that binds you up from the constriction of that sin is Jesus Christ. He's the one that can break the chains and set you free. The festival that Jesus is at is one of three festivals that the Jews put on per year. One was the Passover. The other one was Shabbat. It was 50 weeks after the Passover. Today we celebrate that as Pentecost. But this is the festival of the booths. Some saw it as the favorite. It's the most joyful. The dancing, the celebration. They brought in the harvest so they know they can make it through to another planting season. They know that they have enough bread they know that they have enough livelihood. They've had the blessings of the Lord. Some see it as, as a festival of water, that God has provided the water and the rain through the year. Zechariah says that there's a curse upon the men who do not attend this festival. 
If you do not attend this festival, no matter where you are in the world, you must send a man from your tribe, from your people, from your clan to this festival, or there will be no rain upon your crops. The people call this the season of our gladness because of the celebration of bringing in the crops. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles or booths is when the men would come into town and they would just cover Jerusalem with these booths, with these tabernacles. They would take willow branches and palm branches and weave them together. One of the authors said that they had to weave it together in such a way that the rain could not get in, but that there was enough so that they can look out at night and see the stars in the heavens, so they could see the wonder and the majesty of God. Well, they set up these booths all through the streets, hardly any walking room, on people's rooftops. Can you imagine a celebration coming into town? They start building tabernacles on your roof at home. So they're sleeping on the roofs in these tabernacles. They're in the temple courts building these tabernacles. They're there to celebrate God's goodness. It was during this time that Haggai made his famous prophecy Echoed in Hebrews chapter 12 also. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Haggai makes this prophecy during the festival of booze. Hebrews reflects on this prophecy and says that this shaking will destroy everything that is not of the kingdom of God. Everything that is not permanent, everything that is not eternal, the heavens and the earth will be shaken. And everything will melt away like snow. Then during this festival, the men would come together with their branches from their willows and branches from the palm trees. And they would make a procession. In this procession, the priests would grab a golden pitcher. And they would walk down to the pool of Siloam that was fed by the Gehan Springs. So they went down to where there was fresh water, living water. Water that wasn't stagnant. So they would go down, and the men would follow them, waving the branches in celebration and dancing, and they would sing out of the Psalms, the singing that what they would call the Hallel. It's uh, Psalms 113 to Psalm 118. They would sing this while they were dancing through the streets, following the priests with the golden water pitcher. In breaking free on Monday nights, we're going to be going through these chapters, and the title of, this, of the messages that we're going to be bringing out of the chapters 113 to 118 is, this is how to get your praise back. If you're feeling desperate, if you're feeling lonely, if you're feeling sorrowful, if the world has overtaken you and you feel like you can't breathe anymore, you need to read these psalms and get your praise back. This is the festival of booths. The festival of booths is to remember that God took three million plus people through the desert for 40 years and their feet did not swell. And God provided the manna from heaven to feed them. And God provided the water from the rock. Water 
from a rock? I've heard of getting water from a turnip, but water from a rock. Can you imagine the miracle? You're so dehydrated, you're so famished for water that you're standing there in front of a rock wondering how God is going to deliver you this time. And Moses strikes the rock, and a gush of water comes out so plentiful that it nourishes three million people plus their flocks and their cattle. It was so plentiful that the streams flowed out of this rock. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that this rock that gave the water in the desert was Christ himself. So while they're going through the remembrance of this celebration, the remembrance of God delivering them, they're also looking forward to the future kingdom. I'm going to read a few of the verses out of here. This, these, it, wow, it's amazing. This is water for your soul. Psalm 113, I'm going to skip through pretty quickly. Praise the Lord from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. The name of the Lord is to be praised. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on, heaven, on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the heap ashes. He seats them with princes. 14. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool the rock, hard rock into springs of water. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. One sixteen. I love the Lord for he heard my voice. Wow. Christian, don't be in despair. He hears your voice. Cry out to him. Don't stop crying. When you think your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, cry out to him again. He hears your voice. Your prayers bouncing off the ceiling is a myth. It's a misconception. God hears his children call on his name. He heard my cry for mercy because he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, he saved me. Be at rest once more, O oh my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. In my anguish I cried to the Lord, and he answered me by setting me free. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. If you've lost your praise, read these psalms. Remember what the Lord has done already in your life. He has promised to be faithful, and he will continue to sustain you from the times you remember of his deliverance and his salvation to the future when you can't even see him, he will continue to be faithful and work in your life. That's what the Festival of Booths is all about. So while these men are following the priest, 
down to the pool. And they're getting the living water coming out of that pool, the semblance of the water coming from the rock in the desert. They're remembering in hard times God was there, and now in their prosperity, God is there, and God will continue to be there in his kingdom in the future for us. So they're carrying that in a procession of singing these psalms of dancing in the streets, of waving the palm branches with their sons, and they're going to the temple. And as they get to the temple, they're taking that water, and they're pouring it over the altar as an offering to the Lord, as a gift to the Lord, saying, we remember, and we know you will continue because you have promised you are the faithful one. At that moment when they start to pour over the water, they quote Isaiah 12, 3. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Then it's quiet as the priest pours the water over the altar. Now, this is opinion from the readers I've read. From verse 37, it says that Christ cried out. This is probably the most apropos time that he cried out. The, the last day and the greatest day of the feast. It could be the eighth day. A little bit more solemn, but this is probably the pinnacle of celebration when Christ called out. Let's go to verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within them. Are you thirsty? Where have you gone to quench your thirst? Where have you been going to quench your thirst? Oh, Christian, quench your thirst with Christ, the rock. If you do not believe in Christ today, where have you been quenching your thirst? From the pools of this world? The pools of this world do not offer salvation. This is the deal. When you go to a pool and you look at it, the problem with it is if it's not living springs, if there's not living, clean, fresh water flowing into that pool, it's stagnant. The world's philosophies are stagnant. You can't keep going them to drink. Your soul will perish. You go to these stagnant pools. The deal is it may look good. It may look crystal clear, but you don't have a microscope. What's in that stagnant pool can kill you. You drink from that water and you get dysentery. You will be so thirsty. That water will never quench your thirst if you keep drinking that and you will die. The things of this world, the pools of this world, where have you been going to satisfy your thirst? Even you, Christian, I know even myself, I've drank from some of the pools of this world, and it has sickened my soul. There is one living spring, one living pool that comes from Jesus Christ, the rock. Look at verse 39. This living water John says, by this he meant the Spirit. When you 
acknowledge Jesus Christ, when you drink him in to satisfy your soul, he will give you the Holy Spirit and he will fill you with his spirit and living springs will flow up from within you and give you life to sustain you. This sustaining life is called the spirit. Drink in Christ. He said, He proclaimed to be the Christ. He stood at the well and told the woman at the well that he is the living waters. He told the crippled man that he is the healer. In chapter 5, he said, I am the bread of life. In chapter 6, he fed the 5,000. He is the bread of life that fell from the heavens, the manna that fed them in the wilderness. He is the, the rock that Moses struck that produce the water, that sustain them on their journey. Where have you been drinking? Is your soul thirsty? Even if you're a Christian, your soul can be thirsty. Sin can cut off that spring. It can limit the Holy Spirit working in your life. Confess your sins. 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful. And it's amazing. He is just. It means he won't go back on his word, and he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you're here today and don't know Christ, you need to drink him in. You need to understand that these are the words of life. Some of the disciples left him because they couldn't handle it. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, Peter, are you going to leave? And Peter said, no. You are the wellspring. You have the words of eternal life. You are what feeds my soul. There's nowhere else to go. I'm telling you, there's nowhere else to go. Christians, stay away from the sin, the python that seems so fun that will wrap you up and destroy you. These are the words of God. This is what we put our faith in to understand who the Christ is. Drink him in to satisfy your thirst. It says that the Spirit has not yet been given here. In Genesis 1, the Spirit of God went throughout the face of the earth. God said that he withdrew his Spirit from men because men were continually in sin, sinful sin on their mind, continually. He withdrew his Spirit. The Spirit came back down on the temple and withdrew it again because of men's sin because they did not continue to drink. Jeremiah said that his people were drinking from broken cisterns. They were not drinking from the life-giving well. They weren't drinking from the words of God, the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit had not left us completely. He is the one that holds back the Antichrist. He is still here. But Christ said at this moment, John was saying at this moment, we have not received the Holy Spirit into our lives because something still needed to happen. There needed to be a price paid for that Spirit to come into your life. There needed to be a price paid for sins. The only way to pay for those sins was for Jesus Christ, the one who's claiming to be the rock here, the one who's claiming that he can give you the spirit welling up within you, give you the water. He must be crucified first for your sins, for our sins. 
for the sins of all who put their faith in him. He had to be nailed to a cross and forsaken by God his Father and paid the price for all of our sins. And God had to raise him from the dead. Then, and only then, could the Spirit be giving this well spring of life that will well up in your soul and nourish your soul for eternity. I want to tell you a little bit about my grandpa. If I can tell you a little bit about him. <clears throat> I love my grandpa. He was a he-man of he-men. He was an iron worker. <laughs> he scaffold guy. He, he, men loved him. He was a foreman. Just, just great stories from him. He lived next door to us in Richmond for a while. And I remember listening for his truck coming home. He was about 9, 10 years old, about the same age as Anthony. And I'd run next door, and I'd sit there. He didn't talk much. Sometimes he'd talk, not much. I remember his stew. I could taste his stew 40 years later. <laughs> it was chicken and beef and lamb and cabbage. And it was the most delicious thing I ever remember eating in my life. Probably because Grandpa made it. For all of you grandpas that cook, your grandchildren remember. <laughs> I would sit there sometimes. I'd sit there for a couple hours and grandpa wouldn't say a word. I just wanted to sit next to him. He's a manly man and I love my grandpa. And he'd sit there and he'd smoke a pack of cigarettes in that two hours. <laughs> and he'd sit there mixing his coffee. And I remember... I, I could probably do it. If you guys need, need me to mix your coffee and brandy, I'd probably remember how he did it. He'd pour brandy into one coffee cup and coffee, and then he'd mix the coffee cups, and he'd be sitting there drinking. He was drinking from a well that didn't satisfy him. Are you drinking from a well that doesn't satisfy you? My grandpa got lung cancer, and... Uh, while he was living next door, my uncle lived with him. And one day, my uncle came home, and my grandfather was in the throes of death. And he, my uncle found him on the floor. I don't know how he got there, but he's on the floor. And so he picked him up in his arms. My, my grandpa and my uncle were not Christians. My uncle didn't believe in Jesus. No relationship, no acknowledgement of him. But as he held his dad, he said, Dad, what can I do for you? And he said, you can't do anything for me, son. And he said, Dad, do you want to accept Jesus as your Savior? Do you want to turn your life over to him? At that very moment, he could have been like the thief on the cross who said, Lord, remember me in your kingdom. He could have had salvation. He could have drank from the rock that gave the well of living life. But he told my uncle, no, son. I've lived this many years without him. I don't want him now. Let me tell you the problem with sin. You may have a plan that when your last breath, you're going to turn your life over to Christ. At your last breath, you're going to be a Christian and live for him. I'm a Christian, but at my last breath, I'm going to live for him. Right before I die, I'll accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. The problem with sin is it shackles you, and it binds you, and it blinds you, and you cannot see anymore because the sin has taken over your life. 
at that moment, it's hard to say that if he really wanted Christ, that he would be able to give his life to Jesus. Because he was so blinded with his own pride and his own sin that he couldn't even do it. When he knew he was in the throes of death, live for Christ today. Christian, live for Christ today. If you don't know him, turn your life over to him. Drink from the wells of living water that will refresh your soul. They say with um, dehydration, you can last about three to five days. You can fast for 40 to 60 days. If you're built like me, you'll last 60 days. <laughs> you don't have as much beef on you as I do, you might only last 40. You can go a long time without eating, but you can only go three to five days without drinking water. After three days, you start to hallucinate. You live your life so long without Christ, you won't be able to recognize him. Five days is sure death without water. Jesus is saying, drink the water. Come thirsty. Are you thirsty? Come to me and I will give you springs of living water that will sustain your soul. Stop drinking from the polluted wells of this world. The polluted wells of this life that do not satisfy your soul. Only Christ will satisfy your soul. Only the Holy Spirit being sealed within you will sustain you forever. Today, if you are thirsty and you want to drink of this water, come forward. We'll have pastors, elders, deacons in front. We'll meet with you. We'll talk to you. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're in, where you're coming from, Christian, non-Christian. If you've been drinking from the pools of this life and you found that they are dissatisfying, come forward and let us show you the wells of life. Holy Father, we're amazed by these teachings that come from your word. I pray, Father, that you'll sustain us that we'll eat the manna from heaven, that we'll drink in the life of living water. Save us, Lord. Save us um, from our sins. Forgive us, Christians. Save your people. Forgive your children. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on the one who has never put their faith in you. Let them come thirsty to you and satisfy their thirst with salvation. Satisfy the thirst with the price that you paid on the cross. Be glorified today, I pray. Be glorified. Remove all hindrances, Father, from anyone who would be hindered from coming forward to receive this water, to receive this wellspring of life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.